0: Lord, thank you for this time to look at your word and uh, be still before you and your word. Come Holy Spirit, we pray and change us. We don't want to remain the same. Thank you for the gospel and the hope that we have in what you've done, in your full redemption. And so we bless you that we can worship you this morning Uh, help me I pray in Jesus name amen okay so we've been going through this book uh, Christ (laughs) beginning to end I think is the title uh, and it's talking about Christ throughout the scriptures we've done uh, several sessions already Uh, last week Jason led us in the fall uh in Genesis three or Genesis three <laughs> and um we left off in a pretty bleak spot and we're going to pick up there this morning but for a quick review of what we looked at last week I need my eyes excuse me. We had uh Adam's failure as our representative the shame that was the result he and Eve trying to cover their own shame their peace and rest with God was broken Adam's fellowship with Eve was broken they were banished from God's presence in the garden and God said that they would die, and they began to die. Uh, They died spiritually, they began to die physically. My response to that, if I had been God, which thankfully I'm not, would have been like I treat my students sometimes, I'm done. I've had enough up to here, can't handle it anymore. I can't believe you did that against me. That would be my response. Uh, God is altogether different from us, isn't he? And so we come to the next chapter that's dealing with the title. It says, A Promise of Life and a Promise of Death. And this is related to Genesis 3.15, which is the first uh, account of the gospel coming to us. Good news in the midst of God's judgment. Uh, it's got a big word, proto-evangelium or something, which means the first good news. Uh, but this is, this is hope for Adam and Eve when God says to Adam, or actually to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the promise of death to the serpent was that he would crush his head. And I love to tell this story to little kids and to uh, my, my sixth graders when I have devotions and love to go through uh, the, the physical act of acting like, you know, stepping on that serpent's head and crushing it uh, because that's what Jesus did. And there's this promise of life in the midst of the promise of death to the serpent there's the promise of life for the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve so I have a little story too about a serpent this is a water moccasin in Louisiana Uh, that's not the kind of snake I encountered I was about eight years old and I lived next door to a house that was very close to ours and there were these garbage cans next to it and My friends who lived next door had moved the garbage cans and they had seen a snake's head pop out from under the garbage can. And so they called their dad and he comes out and uh, he lifts it up and that snake starts heading up the hill right toward me. And very vividly, I remember him taking that hoe and whacking that snake's head off. And it was still trying to, you know, do this number. And that tail was just, you know, doing this thing. But that snake was dead. It, it had been dealt a mortal wound. And it was only a matter of time before that tail started slowing down. And that head started, stop moving its mouth. And he was gone, and that is a, a picture to me of what Christ has done. We're in the time of the wiggle of the snake. His head has been crushed. He's he's defeated. He's still wiggling, but he's he's gone. It's over. And Adam evidently had some sense of this promise because what does he call Eve? Mother of all living. Wait, they've just been told that they're going to die and return to the dust. And Adam says, my wife is going to be mother of all the living somehow. And it's hope, isn't it? hope for the future. So, we're going to look at this hope that's given in God's redemption, and the question we're going to ask in this chapter is, how? How how did God accomplish redemption? And the question, how could a son of Eve possibly solve man's problem? Well, he wasn't just a son of Eve son of God and son of man. But he is a son of Eve. And the central question of the Bible is not the central question of our day, is it? What's the central questions of our day? Things like this. What about global warming? Is socialism our biggest threat? Was the election rigged? Important questions. Now, they're questions to be considered, but they're not central. To vaccinate, mask, or booster, or not? Not the main question. How about CRT and racism? These are the questions that our our culture is holding up as the most important things. Or here's, here's a biggie that'll happen today and yesterday. Who's going to win the game? That's our important questions. That, that's, that's a real indictment on us, isn't it? We, we don't see the big question as a culture. And maybe you're familiar with this phrase. Have you ever heard of misdirection in magic? misdirection or direction as some magicians prefer to call it is the subtle deceptive art of directing an audience's attention towards one thing the magical effect so it does not notice another the method mechanics of a trick or in in the case of satan he loves misdirection doesn't he he wants us to be misdirected and not focus on the central question Well, we're going to look at the central question. The central question is, how can a holy God reconcile sinners to himself and declare them righteous? That's not the question our culture is asking. They're suppressing that truth. Satan has filled them with, and and we can be distracted by those questions those who are believers can be distracted by those things but the gospel is the main thing if we think the que- or the answer is an easy one we don't understand how desperate our situation is and that's our culture our world does not understand how desperately their condition is so to begin to appreciate the Bible's good news in addressing our problem we have to fully grasp how dire our standing before God really is and that's what that this chapter talks about our sin before God keeps us from knowing our Creator he cannot compromise his own moral demand in reconciling and justifying sinners by us. And there are a number of rich metaphors the Bible uses to convey the sheer incompatibility of God's holiness with our sin. We're going to look at a few. And they're given to us to reorient our moral sense so we can accurately feel remorse and grief over sin. But God has to open our eyes to it. Anybody know this guy? That's not uh, Kenneth (laughs) Hagin. Or, yeah, is that the one, the prosperity guy? This is an old Baptist evangelist named Rolf Barnard. Keith probably knows him. (laughs) Uh, Pastor Ted used to have a tape library. Uh, Some of the OG here uh, may remember a little wall in the library the old library that had a a wall pocket with little cassette tape holders and pt would grab those out and hand them to people hey go listen to this i want you you'll love this this will be really good you'll be encouraged uh he gave me one by this guy rolf barnard once and he's probably given it to some of y'all before and it was uh how god gets men lost that and this guy was around back in the you know early to mid 1900s that seems like when i was born Uh, so uh rolf barnard is this uh evangelist preaching on men being lost and he said before god saves a man he must get him lost. Before God saves a man, he must get him lost. Man doesn't naturally feel like he's lost. Why, why do we know that? Because he would, he would be looking somewhere else besides all these other questions. But men are quite content where they are, sadly. Before we know Christ, that's what we are. That's what we were. So here are some of the metaphors that the Bible gives. It talks about the height of God in relation to His holiness and our sinfulness. And we're not talking about height this way. We're talking about His transcendence. And we have scriptures like Psalms 717 where it speaks of God most high the most high over all the earth the exalted one over the nations Isaiah we know this passage when Isaiah is before the Lord he has this vision of God and he sees God high and exalted and God is bringing judgment against Israel. And what does Isaiah do? He goes down and he says what? Woe is me. I am undone. I'm ruined. He sees God in his greatness, and his height, and his glory. And he sees himself in his sinfulness. And then God comes and touches his lips with the cold. Or the angel so that's one metaphor another metaphor distance uh, there's a old song back in the late 80s early 90s God is watching us from a distance supposed to be a real comfort uh, that's not what's being talked about here this is talking about our separation from God that God spoke to Moses how through an unapproachable mountain. You couldn't even touch it. Or what? Die. Why? Because God was there. The, the mountain shook. It, it became like fire. And the people were terrified, weren't they, of what they saw. He he said, stay away, don't get close. You'll die. the tabernacle and temple, as much as it was a good thing that God was present with His people in a way that they could see the, the pillar of cloud descend on the tabernacle, there was still distance, wasn't there? Because nobody could just go in there, could they? Only the priests were allowed in the holy place and into the holy of holies only the high priest and him only once a year. It was a separation even though God was present. Distance. What happened when Nadab and Abihu approached the Lord in an unholy way with offerings? They were struck dead. What happened to Uzzah when he tries to... He's He's going to help God and touch the ark and keep it from falling over. He thinks he's helping God. What does God do? Strikes him dead. God is holy, and he's not just approached casually. He's at a distance because of man's sin and because of his holiness. Another metaphor we have is of light and fire. Our inaccessibility to God because of God being light and the images of fire. We have God speaking to Moses from the burning bush. Was he first thing he tell Moses? Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. we see a connection between light and holiness where god lives in inapproachable light it says in first timothy john declares god is light in him is no darkness at all the purity of god in his light light has to do with his purity and his holiness no spot And finally, we hear in Hebrews that God is a consuming fire, not to be trifled with, not to be thought of lightly. So we have these uh, metaphors that convey God's covenantal presence is inaccessible to sinners, that is holiness and human sin. They don't mix, do they? God is so repulsed by sin. In the Old Testament, it describes God's judgment as the land vomiting out Israel. And in Revelations, we're familiar with the passage where God says, your your lukewarmness is so repulsive to me, I want to spew you. I, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Speaking to the Laodiceans. So, these metaphors remind us that his hatred for sin does not contradict his inherent goodness, but instead it serves to prove he's good. He can't tolerate sin. If he tolerates it, he's not good. The Lord is morally so pure, high, distant from sin, a consuming fire whose purity cannot tolerate evil when sin so disgust him that sinners cannot stand or defend themselves before God. So how lost is man? We're lost before we know God. A covenant relationship with us in our sinful state is impossible because God cannot overlook our sin without denying His character, justice, goodness, and purity. So, the central question of the Bible, how can a holy God reconcile sinners to Himself and declare them righteous? Or from our view, how can we dwell in His presence without the just judge we've personally rejected bringing His judgment against us and sending us to hell? And oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Only God could do this. God's purposes and plan being worked out in spite of our sin. And here's his answer. Very familiar passage, but probably one of the most precious passages in the Bible Romans 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus or in Jesus so what do we learn from that passage God is the standard of righteousness His law reflects that standard, His justice, and is making it known, revealing and demonstrating it is a reflection of who He is. He is a holy God. What else? We learn that sinners are unjust. We fall short of God's glory. We don't accurately reflect His image or His moral goodness. We don't reflect it back to him. We don't reflect it to the creation. And we don't reflect it to one another. And that's a problem. Because God's justice justice is questioned if he allows sin to go unpunished. So what do we learn? God is the stand... Oh, excuse me. It is by God's finished work in Christ that God declares sinners to be just because he has paid the debt of their sin and satisfied his glorious, or excuse me, his own righteous demand in God, the Son, the Lord Jesus. God saves in such a way to display the glory of his grace and here's this familiar verse that is precious for by grace a gift we didn't deserve unmerited favor you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves the grace was not of ourselves the faith was not of ourselves It is the gift of God, not by works. Why? We got nothing to boast about. All glory goes to God. In Christ, we're redeemed from the penalty of our sin. God's justice is fully met, and the serpent is a defeated foe. Hebrews says, since the children share in flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. What are humans scared to do? Right now, there's no clear picture of what humans are scared to do. COVID has revealed this world's fear of death. People are afraid to die. And we fear death because it is our enemy. And Jesus said this, or Jesus, the Son of God, became man to destroy sin and death And give us true hope so we no longer have to fear death as we once did. Do Christians fear death? Yeah, but not like they once did. And we don't have to. We want to be like Paul who said, to live is Christ. To die is gain. If we understand the gospel rightly, we'll be more and more convinced of it. And it's a clear echo of God's promise to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3 that there it is he crushed him uh, that is a CGI blood there if you're concerned about the poor snake <laughs> but Christ crushes Satan in paying for our sin Jesus defeats Satan who has power over us because of our sin when sin is paid Satan no longer has power to accuse us before God. His lead role as what? He's the accuser, isn't he? It's been nullified and his primary weapon taken away. He's defeated. Death is defeated. Satan is defeated. And I was using this little slide in the background. It's probably made it hard to read at times. I'm sorry. But This is my Pastor Keith moment. (laughs) This is as good as I can do. I'm no Pastor Keith. Darkness to light. We're we're in this period of moving toward what's ahead. And the rest of this uh, book we're going to look at is going to show pictures pointing ahead. Next is Noah pointing toward the greater Noah and then others who come along in the Old Testament who are pointing toward the greater one that's to come because all those men fail. But they're still pointers. They're they're foreshadowing, Jesus coming, Jesus coming, Jesus coming, and then after Jesus coming, what is the result? New heavens and new earth, that's coming. That's coming for Christ's people. Well, I have one more, uh, two more things one is, anybody know this guy? I like old dead guys. <laughs> this is a guy named, of all names, Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. But God used this man mightily in the 1800s in Brooklyn, New York. He was called the Bunyan of Brooklyn. And he wrote a book, several, well, they've taken, he didn't write a book. He kept records of his interactions with his parishioners. And I think there are 30,000 of them that he recorded. Some some people took some of his writings and put them in two volumes called Pastor Sketches. And if you ever want to be encouraged by uh, pictures of redemption, uh, read those. Those will blow you away. The first book is one about a young Irishman who's dying and... uh, And his interactions with this man who's not a convert and and him dealing with him over days and weeks and his coming to faith in Christ Um, but he has another one here that I want to read briefly and it's going back to uh, men must be lost before they can be saved and here's here's the story if you'll allow me it will take us probably five minutes or less to read Oh my, I'm going to read it this way. (laughs) Finding it impossible on account of the number to have much conversation with each individual at the inquiry meeting. This was during a time of revival where people would go to a meeting house after the service and there would be people lined up against the walls waiting to talk to the pastor. And he'd just go down the the row talking to them. He says, I at one time abandoned the practice of conversation for a few weeks and addressed them all together. I found this was unacceptable and concluded therefore to return to the former custom. It It was on one of those evenings when about 70 persons were present and I was passing rapidly from one to another that I came to an individual who'd never been there before said I, what is the state of your feelings on the subject of of your salvation? I feel, said he, that I have a very wicked heart. It's a great deal more wicked than you think, said I. And immediately left him. (laughs) And addressed myself to the next person. I thought no more of it till a few days afterwards when he came to me with a new song in his mouth. He had found peace with God as he thought through faith in Jesus Christ. Said he, I want to tell you how much good you did me. When you told, when I told you that I had a very wicked heart and you answered that it was a great deal more wicked than I thought and then said nothing more to me, I thought it a most cruel thing. I expected something different. I thought you would say more, and my soul was wonderfully cast down. I did not believe you. I was angry at your treatment. I thought you did not care whether I was ever saved or not. And I did not believe you knew anything about my feelings. But the words rung in my ears, a great deal more wicked than you think. I could not get rid of them. They were in my mind, the last thing when I went to sleep and the first thing when I woke. And then I would be vexed at you for not saying something else. But that was the thing which drove me to Christ. I now know it was just what I needed. I thought when I went to that meeting, my convictions were very deep. But I found out they were very, very slight. You hit my case exactly. If you had talked to me, my burden would have been diminished. But you fastened one idea on my mind. You drove the arrow deeper when I expected you to do just the contrary. And I could find no relief till I gave up all into the hands of Christ. I know you read my heart exactly. (laughs) And he... Was converted he goes on to tell him that story the guy goes how how did you know what to to say and uh, Ichabod said my desire is to conspire with the Holy Spirit so I asked you what you knew and if it was false I would have corrected it but what you knew that was true had to come from the Holy Spirit and so I just drove it deeper nailed it in, and God blessed it.